It's good to see you, Mars Hills. Good to see everybody here. If you're guests with us, we're in the middle of our study on Exodus, and we're in the middle, uh, the latter half of our study on the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments that we're looking at this morning. Uh, and, and as a reminder, these words are words of, in, of, of intimacy. They're words of covenant. They're words from God to us about what it's like to live in relationship together. If this is who I am and this is who I've made you to be, this is how I expect you to live in relationship to me. There are also words of wisdom from a, from a father to his children. This is how life was intended to be. This is how life ought to be lived. As we look at these Ten Commandments, we're seeing words of intimacy and words of, of wisdom. And today we're in the Eighth Commandment in, uh, in Exodus 20, verse 15. It says, you shall not steal like the others just before it that we've looked at. These are extremely brief, only two words, no stealing. And what's interesting is if it's stated in the negative, as we'll see this morning, then all the world of positive possibilities are open to us. It's easier to state the, the negative than it is to say all the things that we're expected to do. And, and like the other commandments, we'll see this morning that this one we can study really with a similar pattern as we have with the others. First, what does the command teach us? That's what we need to ask this morning. What is it, what is it revealing? What is it teaching us? And, and what is it revealing specifically about God? What is it teaching about, about God and his nature and his character? And then what is it teaching us about how we were created? And then that leads us to how this command confronts us or hooks us because things are not as they were originally designed. Things are broken, and so we need to address that. How does this command confront us. And then lastly, we need to see how Jesus fulfills this command and transforms our hearts towards it. Those are our three points this morning. What does the command teach? How does it hook us? And then how does Jesus fulfill and transform it? First, what does it teach? Exodus 20.15, as I've, I've already mentioned, is extremely brief. There's only two words in the Hebrew, lo ganaf, and it simply means no stealing. Simple enough, right? It, it, it's, it's, it, well, that's, what else do we need? We don't need any other explanation. Let's just close our Bibles. We can go from here. Okay, Joe. All right. <laughs> Says the worship leader. So here we have to understand what this command is teaching. It means to, to not steal means to, or, or to steal means to rob, to steal, to take, and this is an important phrase, to carry away without consent or any cost to self. It's to take, to steal, to rob, to carry away without consent for personal gain. It's disadvantaging someone else for our personal advantage. That's what the word means here in, in what we'll see throughout the scriptures. What's interesting is it's not designated. What, what, steal what? Don't steal what? That's not said. There's no object at the end of this command. And many Jewish scholars actually say and would have made cases for don't steal people, don't kidnap, that that's what the command was originally in, in, intended. They think that in the original language that kidnap or steal people is just, it got lost in translation. And there's a good reason that they would think that. They are the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt where they were taken captive and stolen and kidnapped and put into slavery. 
But I think, there's, I think there's no object for a reason. I think that it's general, it's, it's, it's broad for a very specific purpose. I think it's teaching us something about the very character and nature of God and how he created you and I. Later we'll see that there are distinguishing laws on what, to, what we cannot steal people and what we cannot steal possessions and, and the consequences for stealing people and the consequences for stealing possessions. But here it's intentionally broad and I think it's intentionally broad to teach us something about God and about ourselves. One way to understand this command and really all of the commands is to ask this question, not simply what does it tell us we can't do, but what is it commending? What is it encouraging? What are, what are the, if it's stated in the negative, what are the inverse positive doors that it opens and encourages us to do? And this is how the Westminster Shorter Catechism actually interprets this command. Here's what it says. It says that by this command we should endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others and also as well as our own. That's interesting because we would maybe finish that sentence with keep to yourself, preserve your own wealth. But that's not simply what this command is about. It's not simply about you. It's about how you are to live in honor of others, how you're to live in relationship of others. Remember the commands are first vertical and then they're horizontal. And we're seeing that here again. In other words, what is this command teaching? Rather than take, consume, and steal, this command is encouraging us to be people who give and share of everything that we are and to do it lavishly. To give and to share of everything we are, all of our resources, all of our mind, body, strength, gifts, and passions, all of our time, all of our resources, we are intended to be people who give and share lavishly. And why? Because that is who our Heavenly Father is. That's who our God is. That is his DNA and his nature. He is a father who gives and gives and gives lavishly to you and I. Let's take these two phrases first that that we are to give because this is who our Heavenly Father is. And then because we are created in his image to give. Let's take these two phrases one at a time. First, this command to teach is telling us something about the nature of God. From the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2 we can read and see with our own eyes how lavishly generous of a God that we have. Before creation, he exists in the perfect community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what are they doing in that perfect community but giving love and affection and praise towards one another. And out of that perfect community overflows his giving of creation. And what happens at the consummation of creation, the the pinnacle moment of creation? He gives life. And then what does he do when he gives life? He gives man and woman to each other. And then what does he do? He gives them, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, he gives them the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, give life yourselves, and then subdue the earth, have dominion over it. In other words, he gives them responsibility for all of the things that he has created. And then in that creation, he gives them everything they need for life and breath and and vitality and flourishing. 
And then the pinnacle thing, what does he give? He gives himself. He gives his presence. He gives his face. We have a God who is lavishly generous. We have a Father, a Heavenly Father, who is lavishly generous to his children, giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. What does he do? Constantly disadvantage himself for the sake of his children. Parents, you know exactly what this looks like. My wife went on the women's retreat last weekend, and she came home, and I said, how did it go? She said, I got to sleep. (laughs) Okay, well, how else did it go? I also got to sit in a restaurant, and I got to look at a menu for as long as I wanted. And then I got to order food that was all mine. It was just for me. I got to eat it, and no one was taking it off of my plate. It was great. It was a great retreat. Did you learn anything? Oh, yeah, yeah, I learned a whole bunch, too. What is she saying? She's saying what every parent knows. We constantly are disadvantaging ourselves for our children. We're constantly making a meal and then sharing our meal. They're eating off our plate constantly, and it's how they will be for the rest of their life, right? We know what this is like. We have a Heavenly Father who is lavishly generous, and what's interesting is that not only tells us something about Him, but it also immediately tells us something about us. Why? Because we were created in his image to also be lavishly generous with everything that we are to the world. If that's who he is by nature and DNA, then that's also, if we're created in his image, who we are intended to be. We are intended to be people that have a loose grip on on the world, on our, on our lives, on our time, on our, our resources, on our possessions, on everything that we have. We're intended to be people that have a loose grip on these things and lavishly relinquish them willingly to the world, to, to whoever is in need, to others. This is who he is and this is who we are. This is his DNA and nature and this is how he created us. We are to be people who Rather than take, consume, and steal, be people who give and share lavishly like our Heavenly Father in whose image we were created. He is, James says in James 1.17, the, the Father who gives every good and perfect gift. And we've been created in His image to also give of everything that we are. This is who He is and this is who we were created to be. And that leads us to how this command confronts us how it hooks us. We have a lavishly generous God who created us in his image to be lavishly generous people, but that's not the world we live in, is it? Sure, we see it in in, in fits and spurts. We we, we see people that are generous all the time. We we know people. We ourselves may be be generous in fits and spurts, but it's always tainted with sin, with self-centeredness, We give maybe with a raised eyebrow, skeptically. How are they going to use that money? Where's that going to go? Or we give conditionally. Here, I'm going to put conditions on how you're going to use what I'm giving you. Worse than that, we we aren't living in a world that where everyone is lavishly generous. We live in a world where we're surrounded by consumers. We're surrounded by people who take. We ourselves are people who take and consume all the time. This is the world we live in. Our default position from birth is not to be lavishly generous and open-handed. Right, parents? How many times have you heard the word mine? Our our two-year-old 
our three-year-old turned two and then into three, and, and I've never heard the word mine give it back so many times. We, don't, we aren't born with, with, a, with a desire to, to openly, oh, yeah, yeah, no, let me share, let me give. That's, we have to be taught that. This is not our default position from birth. The fact that we have a command that tells us not to steal tells us something about how we were originally designed, but it also tells us about our fallen nature, about the condition of our fallen hearts, that the natural bent and disposition of our lives is not to be lavishly generous and open-handed. It actually is to be consumed and self-centered, consuming and self-centered, to be people who take. And there's a reason for this. It's all a result of the fall. We can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. As a result of the fall, we have a natural disposition for more than what God has given us. We're dissatisfied and we're discontent with who we are, with what we have, and where we are in life. And there's a reason. Because we had a tempter who entered the garden who caused Adam and Eve to distrust God and all of his good intentions and his lavish generosity towards them. And rather than see all that he had given them, all they saw was what he took from them or what he was keeping from them. And that's the heartbeat of the temptation. Did God really say that you can't have everything in the garden, you can't eat of that one tree? Did God really say, in other words, are you sure you can trust him? He, didn't, he doesn't mean that you'll surely die. His word can be doubted. No, no, no. He knows that you will be like him. He's afraid of you. He's scared. He's keeping something from you. He's taken something from you. You need to take it back. And listen to Genesis chapter 2, verse 6. Astonishing. Here's what we hear. So when... The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. What did she do? She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We'll come to this delight and desired language when we get to the 10th commandment on coveting. But I want us to focus on this phrase, she took. She took this fruit from the tree. The phrase literally means she seized, she took for herself without consent and carried away for her personal benefit, personal advantage. She took without consent and carried away for her personal advantage. This is the heart of what happens here in this scene. It's the first five-finger discount in human history. She has taken and carried away for her personal advantage. At root, what we see in the garden stealing is a matter of heart idolatry. That it is seeing something that I want more, that I desire more than I want God or to obey him. But greater than that, at an even deeper level, stealing is enthroning ourselves as God. We've mentioned this throughout the Ten Commandments, but when you dethrone God, you naturally enthrone yourself. 
And when you enthrone yourself and you are God and sitting on the throne, then what are people to you? They're your pawns. They're, they're for you to do with what you desire. They owe you honor if you're God. They should bow down and worship you. Their spouses are for you to take as you please. And their possessions are naturally for you and yours to take as you want. When we dethrone God and enthrone ourselves, the natural byproduct is everything opposite of these Ten Commandments. Everyone owes us. We deserve. We can take. People are ours to do with what we want. And this is the natural result of the fall and the byproduct ever since. Now we live in a world where we are constantly clamoring, grasping, reaching, taking things that don't belong to us because we think we're God. Think about it. Think about all the different ways. When we read this, you shall not steal, maybe you came in this morning and you, were, you, you think, well, here's, here's another one I, finally I don't have to deal with. I've never committed grand theft auto. I've never broken and entered. I don't have to worry about this command. But think about all the thousands and thousands and thousands of ways that we steal every single day. We take credit for things that don't belong to us, don't we? Have you ever worked for a supervisor who took credit for your work, either explicitly or implicitly? A supervisor where you did all the work and then the supervisor gives the presentation and when everybody's clapping, he takes the credit or she takes the credit completely, explicitly. Yeah, I did a good job on this, didn't I? Or implicitly, when people praise the supervisor, they don't direct the praise to the one who did the work. That's stealing. It's taking credit. Or maybe plagiarism. Have you ever been in a setting or seen a setting or listened to preachers and teachers who rob blatantly, either in writing or in teaching, other people's work. This happens all the time. I've, I've, I've literally sat in, in places and services and, and listened to, to, to teachers and preachers read manuscripts or read whole sections of books and never give credit. When I was when I was teaching, when I was in a university setting and I was teaching, I was reading a book and I said, this book really is so familiar. I don't understand where the, and then I realized, I've read this book before. I've read this entire chapter before. Okay, well maybe this person knows the other person. Maybe there's a footnote. Maybe there's some kind of reference. No reference, none whatsoever. I, I've, I've felt strongly about that. I wrote the other author and I said, hey, you probably know this person. I'm sure that they just didn't, they just forgot to do it. No, I don't know who that person is. They, they completely lifted an entire chapter. It happens all the time. We take credit for things. We do it in, in, in work. We do it in plagiarism. We do it in all kinds of thousands of ways. We take credit. Or maybe we rob others of honor. We don't give honor where honor is due. Why do we have a command on honor your father and mother? Honor those who are elders among you or those who are older among you, those who are, have, have wisdom, honor them. We steal, we rob honor from one another. Or maybe think about how we steal time from our employers. Ouch. We don't give a whole, a whole honest day's work. Instead, we take from our employers, we 
we hedge our time cards, or maybe we're not on time cards, we, we hedge our time at work, scrolling social media or doing something else, rather than giving a full day's work. Are we squirming yet? We do this in a thousand ways. We take life. We take power from others. Think about what sexual abuse is, which is so prominent and prevalent in, in our, our day in terms of being highlighted. It's rel- it, it, it happens, but it's, it's especially highlighted. Think what sexual abuse is. It's taking honor and dignity and autonomy and independence and power from another person. We steal in a thousand ways beyond grand theft auto. Worst of all, we steal glory from God. Isn't that what stealing ultimately is? It's taking glory that he is due, honor and worship that he is due, and taking it from him and giving it to a trinket or a treasure in this world. That's ultimately what stealing is. This is exactly what God addresses in the book of Malachi in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. And there, we often look at those verses and we hear about the tithe, but we have to understand the context of what God is addressing there. He says to the people of Israel, you are robbing me. You are stealing from me. What were they doing? They were living in dire circumstances, in economic oppression they were in dire circumstances and rather than trust the infinite God of the universe to provide for them instead when they were bringing their sacrifices to God they were literally bringing mangled roadkill sometimes sacrifices goats and lambs they found in the field they were not bringing God their best to him to worship instead they were bringing him half-hearted sacrifices They were not giving him their best. There was no sacrifice in their sacrifice. God had given them everything, and they were unwilling to trust him to provide for them, even with a tenth of what he had given to them. And for that reason, what we see in Malachi 3 is really a window into the spiritual decay of their own hearts. What we see in that moment is what they worship most. They worship their own strength. They worship their own security, their own ability to provide for themselves. They worship their treasures and their trinkets. They're not worshiping God. They've taken glory and worship and honor from God, and they're giving it to something else. Maybe their strength, maybe their crops, maybe their goats, maybe their fields. They're hoarding it to themselves, and God says, you are robbing me. You're not trusting me. You're not giving me all the glory and honor to provide for you. So we rob in a thousand ways, and ultimately what we're doing is robbing God. Back to the command here, you shall not steal. Why? Why? Because we are not God, and people and possessions are not ours to do with as we please. We don't get to call the shots. We're not on the throne And this world and the people in it and the possessions that he may grace us with are not ours to do with as we please. We're under authority. We're under a king. We're called to submit. And that includes everything that we are and everything that we own and everything that we possess. Now we have to ask the question, what is our hope? What would take 
What would take, what has the power to radically transform our lives and move us from people who take to people who willingly relinquish and give lavishly? What has the power to change our lives, to change our hearts, to move us from people with an ironclad grip on things to people who give lavishly, share lavishly, relinquish control, relinquish our calendars, relinquish our time, relinquish our minds, relinquish our gifts, relinquish our possessions, relinquish our homes, and open them to others? What would take us from people who are hoarding and consuming to that? And that's our third point here, how Jesus fulfills this command and transforms our heart towards it. How does Jesus fulfill this command first? Jesus fulfills this command by giving his life lavishly and generously on our behalf. We have a lavishly generous God. We see that from creation. He created us in his image to be lavishly generous. We have fallen, and therefore we're not lavishly generous. Instead, we hoard and consume. We, we clamor, we grasp, we, we take. And, and, and now what we're being told is do not steal. Instead, be people who give. How can I give? How can I move from that position to this position? The only answer is to see the lavishly generous grace of Jesus. Jesus was lavishly generous with his life on our behalf. A couple of ways we can see in the New Testament. Jesus is not a glory thief. He's not taking credit for everything. He's not hogging glory from God. Instead, his will, his food, his desire is to give glory to God. Is to by his life, by his actions, by his sacrifice, by his substitution, to give honor and glory to God. To God the Father, John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. This is his will. Elsewhere in John, he says, this is my food. This is the thing that gives me life, to do the will of the Father. He's glory giving, not glory stealing like you and I. Another way, Jesus did not come and demand service. He didn't come and say, give to me. He came and gave to us. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And look at the, look at the phrase after the comma. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come demanding, though he had every right to. He came giving. He didn't come consuming and taking. He came giving up, relinquishing control, relinquishing authority, relinquishing power, which is another way and one of the pinnacle ways we see how Jesus fulfills this command. He did not come gobbling up power. He did not come gobbling up power or using his power to disadvantage us. Instead, he humbled himself, relinquishing authority, relinquishing power, for our advantage, for our good, for our gain. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Who, Jesus, Paul's been talking about the mind of Christ, have this same mindset, mind, heart of Jesus. If Jesus is in you, this is how you ought to be. He, he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want you to look back at that word grasped, and I want you to look in your Bibles. There's a footnote in almost every one of the translations. And look at what it says. It says in some variation, it says grasped means a thing to be used for personal advantage. The Greek word is even more explicit. It's the, this is the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament. And it means he did not see the power, the equality with God as something to seize, to take, and to carry away as his own, for his own advantage. He did not do what Eve did in the garden. In fact, in Jesus, what we get is the exact opposite of Adam and Eve, instead of reaching, grasping, taking for personal gain and carrying away, what does Jesus do? Jesus relinquishes control. He humbles himself. He relinquishes power. If stealing, consider this, stealing is taking and carrying away something at no cost to yourself. It's disadvantaging someone for your own selfish gain. In Jesus, we get the exact opposite. Jesus disadvantaged himself for our gain. He gave his life at great cost to himself in order to do what? Carry away our sin. 1 John 5, 3, 3, 5, he appeared in order to take away sins or carry away sins. Jesus did not do what Adam and Eve did, seize grass and carry away for personal gain. Instead, Jesus relinquished. He did not reach. He did not grasp in order to do what? Carry away your sins. This is so amazing and beautiful. What we're hearing here is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus willingly disadvantaged himself for your gain and mine. He did not come to take our lives. He came to take away our sins and give us life. This is the gospel. This is why he came. This is how he fulfills this commandment. And this is what leads to true change. This is where true change begins how does he fulfill it? We've seen that. Now, how does he transform our hearts in this command, through this command, towards God? From takers and consumers to givers. It begins by placing our faith in his costly sacrifice. But it continues by never taking our eyes off that costly sacrifice. How are we transformed? There's a once-for-all transformation that happens. We talk about it, theological term, justification. It's the identity change that happens as a result of placing our faith in Christ and his work on our behalf, his not grasping, but his relinquishing in order to carry away. That's where we are changed. But how do we grow? How do we continue to grow and change? By never taking our eyes off of his costly sacrifice. By fixing our eyes on his costly sacrifice. Jesus loosens the grip of sin and death on our lives, and it's as we are daily melted by that sacrifice, as we are daily staring at, in the word, by the power of the Spirit, seeing that costly sacrifice, it's that time and, and, and how we then find our grip on things begin to loosen. 
As we stare at how much he gave, we realize how much we hoard and we, re- we let go. As we stare at how much he sacrificed, we realize how little we do. And we're humbled and we're broken. And that's where the grip begins to loosen. He moves us from takers to givers by his grace. He loosens our, tr- our, our, our grip on the earthly trinkets and treasures and moves us to be people who, who let go. Let's look at a few examples in the New Testament to see how this plays itself out. First, in, in Acts, in the early church, how did the early church view their possessions? After the Spirit comes and after the Spirit continues his work, the work of Jesus, and after Peter preaches and there's, there's, there's thousands that repent and come to faith, what does Acts chapter 2 tell us? They were all together and had everything in common. And in verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distrib- distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Several things here. First, they saw their stuff as gifts, not God. They, they received their food at, with glad and generous hearts. They stopped clinging to worshiping their things. They started worshiping the one true God. And when they did that, their stuff was rightly ordered in their hearts and their lives. It's a gift. I can't believe that he's given me this. I can't believe he's given me this to, to steward, to share, to, to give, to love, to serve, to exemplify him in the world. But also, don't miss verse 45, they, were, they started to sell their possessions and to give to everyone who had need. Now, don't make a mistake here, because sometimes this happens. We, we see this as the living in like a commune. We see this as one of the isms, socialism, communism, some other ism that, that tells us that your stuff is my stuff or my stuff is your stuff. That's not what, what's being said here. That's not what happened here. This, their possessions are possessions. A possession is something possessed. It's something owned. The property rights are not discouraged in the, in, the script, in the scriptures, Old Testament or New. That's why you have a command. Don't take something that belongs to someone else. That's what makes this so astonishing. Their possessions were their possessions. And yet they said, here, can I help you? You have a need. Can I help you? Can I serve you? Hey, here's my home. Come into my home. Here's a meal. I made a meal. Come, come eat with me. Hey, what do you need? Hey, so-and-so, ha- so-and-so, they have a need. Oh, yeah, yeah, let me meet the need. They relinquished control. Their grip was loosened. And this is what shocked the world about the New Testament believers. All the way up to Roman Emperor Julian, and it's historically noted in, in, in around 360 A.D., he, he says that he was so shocked that the Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. What's he most shocked by? He's shocked that the Christians not only cared for their own, but they cared for others. They, they gave, they gave, they gave of themselves, their time, their energy, everything they have, and they kept giving and opened it up to the world. Look at another example. One of my favorite in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul 
in Corinthians, as he's writing, one of the other things he's doing on this missionary journey that he's on is he's trying to raise funds for, for the relief effort of the Jerusalem Christians. They're suffering severe famine. They're suffering severe circumstances, adverse circumstances. They're economically challenged significantly. And so one of the many things among preaching the gospel that he's doing is also raising funds among the churches that he has established. And in 2 Corinthians, he writes about, to to the Corinthians, he writes about the Macedonian believers. Macedonia was north of, of Corinth. It was in Thessalonica. And he's writing about them. And listen to what he says about their condition. Their condition, they were under a severe test of affliction. But with their, for in their severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. They themselves were under extreme poverty and, and, and extreme affliction. And yet, it overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And here's unbelievable what, what, he, what Paul says here in verse 3. For they gave to the relief effort of Jerusalem according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And then verse 4, something, I mean, how many times have we ever heard this? Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They gave, they gave above their means, beyond their means, they even begged to give. And yet they were under severe affliction and poverty And so as Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, trying to encourage them to support the the relief efforts of Jerusalem, he could have played Sarah McLachlan music at this point. He could have played the poor puppy dog music. You've seen the commercial where you should give because puppies are dying and there's Sarah McLachlan in the eyes of an angel behind and you should just be melted and moved. He doesn't appeal to their emotions. He doesn't appeal to guilt. He doesn't appeal to shame. He doesn't play a power dynamic over them. Instead, he appeals to the Corinthian church. He says, and you know this gospel. And you know the gospel of the Macedonians. You know the good news of the grace of Jesus to the Macedonians. No, let that melt your heart and move you to support your fellow brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. He says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you who by his poverty might become rich. Do you hear it? It's the gospel. That Jesus, in all of his glory, and all of his greatness, and all of his power, and all of his authority, all of his riches, humbled himself to the point of death and became poor. Spiritually speaking here, what we're talking about, we're not talking about possessions at this point in verse 9. We're talking about the gospel. He destituted himself for the destitute to be raised. You and I. He died so that you and I who were dead could be made alive. And Paul says, Corinthian believers, brothers and sisters, be melted by that. Stare at that. Don't take your eyes off of that. Let it move you and melt you to relinquish control and to give of yourselves in whatever means and ways that you can for your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. One last example. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is writing here, and it's stated as an imperative, a a demand, a command, but there's instruction in it. 
It's an indication of gospel change. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see it? It's not enough to, to simply not be a thief. Gospel change takes us from simply not stealing to people who don't steal and give lavishly of ourselves, of our lives, of anyone who may have need. Jesus, when he takes up residence, turns thieves into laborers who leverage their resources for the good of themselves, that's in the text, and also others. Not simply for themselves. This is what happens when gospel transformed lives. This is what happens when we see and savor God's lavish grace in Jesus. We're transformed from takers and consumers and hoarders to lavishly generous people. Now, that may not be your common experience. You may actually sit here and think, I know a lot more people who would say they're not believers I know a lot of non-Christians who actually are far more generous than the Christians that I know. Or maybe it's not your personal experience right now. You, you, you find yourself clinging to not being lavishly generous. You find yourself possessing and being possessed by your possessions, not relinquishing. So what do we do? What does this mean? It means that we have to fix our eyes on Jesus and return moment by moment to his lavish generosity. This is what melts our hearts and moves us from takers to givers, from consumers to generosity. This is what happens. We have a, a thief. We have, first of all, immeasurable riches in Christ Jesus, and we have a thief who comes, Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he will use any means necessary to distract you, just as he did with Adam and Eve. He will use any means necessary to distract you from the infinite treasure and beauty of Jesus. And he will use the trinkets and treasures of this world to do it. So we have to listen to the truth of the word in the hands of the Spirit. And what is the Spirit doing? What is his primary job above all things? It's to use the word to lift our eyes to the treasure of heaven. To lift our eyes from the trinkets and treasure of this world to the treasure of heaven. When we take our eyes off Jesus and the surpassing riches of his grace, we are quickly distracted and deceived. Or as C.S. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. The enemy will constantly inundate us with trinkets and treasures to distract us because we are we've, we struggle with gospel amnesia every single day. And he knows this and he will attack. And so we have to come back to the word. We have to come back to the spirit. And we have to listen to what he's doing and lift our eyes from our trinkets and treasures to the treasure of heaven. What muddy trinket or treasure is distracting you from the surpassing riches of Jesus? 
today. One of my favorite movies from childhood was Goonies. It's a classic, I know. It's in the top five of all time of all movies. I know that you would agree with me. If you remember, they're in search of One-Eyed Willie's treasure, right? Their homes are, uh, I've actually been to Astoria, not because I'm such a Goonies fan, but been there, and I did look up the place. Their homes are, 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 are being foreclosed on and being, and being repossessed, and their families, four or five of them, are about to lose their homes, and so they're trying to come up with a last-ditch effort to save their homes. And so what do they do? They go, and they go on a treasure hunt for One-Eyed Willie's famed treasure hidden somewhere in Astoria. And as they do, they stumble at one point in one of the scenes, they stumble through a cave and into this, what they think is the treasure. What they don't know at the moment is it's a wishing well. And one of the characters' mouth is just clamoring and grasping and, and, and taking all of the pennies and nickels and dimes that he can find and he's stuffing them in everywhere and all the places he can possess and he, he's getting them and he's grabbing them. And one of the main characters says, Mouth, this is not the treasure. These are pennies, nickels, and dimes. These, this isn't the treasure we're after. What pennies, nickels, and dimes of approval, of possessions, of glory are you and I after that's distracting us from the infinite surpassing riches of Jesus, the true treasure? What pennies, nickels, and dimes are you settling for when the infinite treasure of Jesus is offered to you? I was reading Jen Wilkins' study on, on the 10 words, and in it she said something interesting I thought was really interesting and helpful and she says, one day thievery will, see, will cease. It will. One day thievery will cease. The things we long to steal in this life will be the pavestones of the new Jerusalem. I don't know if you were like me, but whenever I heard preachers and teachers talk about heaven when I was a kid, they always talked about the, the streets of gold and the mansions in the sky. And I don't know if you were like me, but as a kid, that made me want the streets of gold and the mansions in the sky not the true treasure of heaven himself. And so I appreciate her point. She's reminding us that one day, the things that we covet here on earth, the things that we cling to, will actually be like asphalt in heaven. Can you imagine all of us in heaven and, and you see me, Neil, what are you doing? And you see me on my hands and knees chiseling out some gold little pavestone. And you're saying, Neil, you've lost your mind. Why are you chiseling out a gold pavestone? That's dirt here. The true king of heaven, the treasure of heaven is calling your name. You'd say you've lost your mind. You've lost your sight. What are you doing? And so I ask this morning, what worthless gold are we chasing after when the king of heaven is calling us by name? Look to the cross and see the lavish generosity of your heavenly father. See the costly sacrifice of the son disadvantaging himself in order to carry away your sins. And hear the word of the spirit lifting your eyes to see the surpassing riches of Jesus. And let it melt your heart and move you to be lavishly generous with all that you are, time, resources, mind, everything. This is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning and for this command that teaches us so much about who you are, who you created us to be, how we're fallen, 
in how Jesus redeems and restores us. Change our hearts this morning. Melt our hearts by a vision, a clear-eyed vision of your lavish grace. Melt us and move us to stop clinging to the mud pies in the slum, the pennies, nickels, and dimes, the gold pavestones that are asphalt, worthless dirt, when the true king of heaven is calling our name. May we cling to you, Jesus, and may it change and transform our hearts and our lives. And may we experience that change together, and then may the world experience it as a result. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.